Good evening and welcome to the BAMF Center. I'm Davianne Saltzman. I'm the Director of Literary Arts. Before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge that we are proudly located on the side of Sleeping Buffalo Mountain, which was yesterday formally renamed Sacred Buffalo Guardian Mountain. Oh, exactly. Um, home to Treaty 7 territory of the Stony Nakoda, Blackfoot, and Sutina nations. I'd also like to thank our supporters, the Government of Alberta, the Government of Canada, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, and our many individual donors who make these programs and events possible. A number of you are in the audience, and I just want to personally thank you very much. I'm incredibly excited to welcome you to this weekend, uh, The Art of Stillness. This weekend and the residency program that's associated with it were born out of an essay of the same name and conversations that began seven months ago with myself and Pico Ayer. One of the world's foremost travel writers and essayists, two years ago, Pico started exploring the idea of going nowhere and slowing down in an accelerated digital world. The weekend was born out of a desire to explore that theme further, especially how it relates to artists, artistic practice, and our, all of us as individuals in our daily lives. We both felt what better place to do this than the retreat center of Banff, and also Banff as a space for conversations around art and ideas. I do hope you find it enriching. Without further delay, I'd like to introduce our host and our guest for tonight. Our host is the fantastic Lori Brown. Lori has had her ears in music for her entire career. She's the host of the late night CBC Radio 2 show, The Signal. It's dark, she gets to stay up late, and she gets to share evocative new music with you. She is also a participant in the Art of Stillness Residency. Pico Ayer is the author of 12 books on subjects as diverse as globalism, Graham Greene, the Cuban Revolution, Islamic mysticism, and Canada. He has contributed introductions to more than 50 books, done liner notes for Leonard Cohen, written a script for Miramax, and is a regular essayist for Time, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The New York Review of Books. In both 2013 and 2014, he gave a TED Talk, one on movement, two TED Talks, one on stillness. Each have been seen by over two million people. Born in Oxford, England, and educated at Eton, Oxford, and Harvard, Ayer has been based in Western Japan for 28 years, though he comes to Canada every year, and revised his last major book here in Banff. His 2008 book on the 14th Dalai Lama, The Open Road, had drawn from 30 years of talks and travels with the Tibetan leader and was a national bestseller and translated in dozens of languages. The same is true of his most recent, The Art of Stillness, the second TED original essay ever to be published. Please give a really warm welcome to Pico Ayer and Laurie Brown. Thank you. Thank you. So even if you haven't read a book of Pico Ayers, you have run into him in a million different ways, in a million different publications. This is the man who wrote The Global Soul. This is a man who has been called Thomas Merton on a frequent flyer pass. <laughs> This man has traveled at jet speed for decades of his life, and he's here to talk about stillness. <laughs> this requires a little investigation. <laughs> so before we start to talk about deacceleration, let's just get a sense at 
how fast life is, because I think it's a bit like um, asking a fish to tell you about water, because uh, you don't know, because it's everywhere. How would you sum up the, the speed of life that we're trying to live at right now? It's the speed of light rather than the speed of life. I think that's exactly the problem, um, that we're living at a speed determined by machines. And I think I was saying to you earlier this week, it's hard for humans to live at a pace determined by machines without becoming machines themselves. Uh, I was just hearing about a, a teenager in California. This was many years ago, but they already found she was sending 10,000 texts every day every day of her life. Uh, and just this week, somebody gave me a really interesting article to say that even as recently as 2011, only five years ago, one in three Americans had a cell phone. And now I'm guessing it's 98%. So just in five years, everything is growing so fast. And I think we were feeling dizzy, some of us already, 10 years ago. So is it solely because of technology? You could blame airplanes, but since my life has been living on airplanes, I better not blame them. Uh, I, I think, yes, and the culprit is never technology, it's us. It's our inability to make discerning use of technology. So the devices are neutral. In fact, they've opened wonderful new universes for every one of us. And I daily think of all the things I could do that my grandparents couldn't imagine doing. The problem is that any of us, when faced with a tool, maybe turns it into a hammer instead of something softer. Uh, and I think what, what I notice mostly is that so many people are stressed. I mean, everybody here is really sensible, because if you're living in Banff, you've decided to surround yourself by clarity and peace. And so you've already found some of the solution to this. But well, you probably know the World Health Organization not so many years ago said the health epidemic of the 21st century is stress. And I find with my friends or my neighbors, with myself, that they have and we have less and less time to tend to our kids, to be with our friends, to take care of the basic human stuff. When I get emails, uh, half of them begin, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have long to talk to you. And the other half begin with apologies that they haven't written for 27 months or something. Um, and I was just actually in my quiet cabin in the woods here this morning. I was remembering how when I was working for Time magazine, in the 1980s, we had a fairly big staff, and we worked really hard until midnight every Thursday and until four in the morning every Friday. And we published about 40 articles every week. And they were very carefully proofread and fact-checked. And we thought we'd really exerted ourselves to bring out 40 pieces. And just a few years ago in Japan, by chance, I met an editor from Time magazine. I said, how are things? And he said, well, forget about the weekly news magazine, as it used to be called. It's the minutely news magazine now. And he said, we are responsible for 100 articles a day. And of course, the staff is much smaller than in my day. So we were already stretched to the limit. And now they're bringing out 17 times more articles with fewer people. And I don't think humans are able to do that. And I think whatever your line of business or even your line of passion happens to be, exactly the same thing is at work. And sadly, a couple of years after that, um, I picked up a copy of the magazine. And I found that that editor who'd said that to me was dead at 41, um, found in his health club. You know, he's doing the rowing and he died. 41. Uh, and of course, that's a dramatic example. But I think all of us are aware that we're out of breath and that the more we try to keep up with the world, the more we're falling behind. It makes me wonder in 200 years' time what historians uh, will say about the information age that we lived in. 
How would you sum that up? They will say how slowly they were living, <laughs> as, as we do when we look at the year 1816. I mean, just one way or another, life and machines are accelerating, and they will have made their peace with it. They will have found ways um, of, of being at home in flying to Mars or whatever they're doing. Um, I, I was saying just to you on our way into the stage that I think you and I are at a sort of transitional stage because we grew up with one pace and now we're suddenly being jet jetted into another. Uh, so I'm not worried about our kids because I think they will make peace with their devices the way you and I made the peace with cars and television and everything that seemed so anarchic when we were young. But I think it's those who are used to the um, 16 RPM record who are finding their lives going at 78 RPM who don't know exactly what to do and how to respond. I mean, if I were asked to, to talk about the age of information, I would say it's the age when we know less and less about more and more. And sometimes the more we hear about other countries, for example, the, the less we know about them. And it's interesting that in the age of diversity uh, and globalism, sometimes it's easier than ever to be more provincial and to be surrounded by people who feel like us and think like us and look like us. Um, so even the age of uh, information probably needs an asterisk. I mean, I, I was thinking also this morning, remembering when I was at Time magazine, that uh, when I began writing and traveling in the 80s, really I felt that we were crying out for more information. None of us really had enough information about Tibet or Cuba or about our neighbors even. And we've gone very quickly from having not enough information to having far too much. And the great luxury in, in the old days used to be getting information. And I think the great luxury now is getting away from it. So that, that impetus that for you to get on a plane and to go to places in the world and to write about those, um, you say it came from not having enough information. Um, what else? What was it about you that made you want to travel the world and be in places that you knew nothing about? Well, I was a hopeless case from the beginning. I mean, even in my mother's womb, I was on a boat uh, traveling between continents. And then from the age of nine, I was going to school by plane. And so, uh, I, I'm a kind of uh, inhuman creature insofar as I'm at home in airports and in passageways between places and in the stage of movement. But that said, I remember in the 1960s when I was growing up in England, I never saw another um, dark-skinned kid. And then when my parents moved to California, uh, even in California, I, I would almost never see anybody who looked like me. And I thought, this is a rare and rather privileged position to be in, to have bits of me in different cultures and to make a mosaic out of the different places in my background. And I never guessed, as a little boy, that quite soon, in Toronto, for example, the average person is like me, born in a foreign country, and that the number of people like me on the globe is 230 million, those who are juggling many homes. And the number is rising so quickly, there'll soon be more people like me than there are Americans. So what used to be a rather lonely situation is now a whole wonderful floating community. And although, like any community, it has its divisions, and there are some people who live it in a very privileged way, and some in a very desperate, undefended way, like the ref refugees we're hearing so much about. Nonetheless, I, I think it's wonderful in the course of my lifetime to see so many um, boundaries shift. So I was a curious person to love crossing borders as a boy, but now I think we think nothing of it, and it's second nature to so many people, and to our kids even more so. Take me back to that moment in New York when you decided that you were going to leave New York City mm. and you were going to move to Japan. Tell me about that moment. 
Yes, and again, I feel embarrassed because I was boring you with the story earlier in the week. But uh, but it was so great. I wanted to tell you. All right, thank you. <laughs> um, so yes, I was I was in my twenties, and I suppose I had the life I might have dreamed of as a, as a kid because I had this very exciting job writing on World Affairs for Time Magazine, and I had an apartment overlooking Park Avenue, and I had this twenty-fifth floor office just four blocks from time, <coughs> Times Square, and I had really, really interesting friends and colleagues. Of course, no dependents or obligations, so I could, and I did literally um, take my holidays in Bali or El Salvador or Burma and really try to learn about the world firsthand. But even then, I think I felt that I was having such a wonderful time in my job, I couldn't see how deep the happiness ran. And I couldn't tell whether I was just addicted to the stimulation or really fulfilling myself in, in a deep way. Were you moving too fast to figure that out? Uh, I was in such a state of exhilaration, I could never hear myself think and I could never se separate myself from the assumptions and values of New York City. And I suppose a part of me thought, well, if I don't wake up, I will be 75 years old, my life will be ending, and I'll wonder if I've l died never having lived, or only having seen this tiny, unrepresentative corner of the world. And uh, so I thought, well, moving to a monastery in Japan, whatever happened would open a door to a radically different universe and take me somewhere that New York City never did. Were you scared to death? No, I was excited to death. And I, it's funny, just at the reception, I was mentioning to two new friends that the, the main reason I moved to Japan, and it's remarkable in retrospect, is that I was flying uh, uh, in my first year in my job from Thailand back to New York City. And I had a 16-hour layover in Narita Airport near Tokyo, and just what no traveler wants, an enforced layover. And uh, Japan Airlines put me up in an airport hotel, and I woke up the next morning and... Um, had breakfast, and then I saw I had four hours to kill before check-in. What am I going to do, I thought, in four hours? And I knew what airport towns were like. Um, Hounslow, Inglewood, Queens, they're not the most <laughs> sparkling <laughs> centers of civilization. But uh, there was a little sign in the lobby of the hotel offering a free shuttle bus into the town of Narita. And I thought, well, I'll probably never come to Japan again. I have nothing else to do. Why don't I take this bus? So I took it. 20 minutes later, I got off in this very narrow lane with a line of wooden houses houses with picture windows looking out on the first touch of red and green, rather like this, but red and yellow for the coming of the autumn, shoes laid out impeccably outside the wooden platforms. And I followed this riddle of small lanes up to what turned out to be a thousand-year-old temple, one of the great pilgrimage spots in Japan. And I started walking around the temple and its huge gardens, which are like a park. It was a day in late October, mild sunshine, but the first pang and ache of autumn on the way and the end of things. And there were a few little kids um, there collecting acorns on um, a school expedition. And something in that scene so moved me that by the time I boarded the plane at 1.15 that afternoon, I decided to move to Japan. And one thing I thought about later is the irony that I had taken this wonderful trip to Thailand and Burma and Hong Kong and Macau, each of which had amazed me more than the previous place, and yet what turned my life around was just the unwanted layover. And I think in some ways it's not a coincidence because I do believe we all have these secret homes. In other words, it's like in a crowd such as this, you may meet a stranger and somehow you feel you've known that person forever and that you know that person better than you know your friends and family. And I think most of us have that relation with places, often ancient places, but people feel magnetically drawn 
to Egypt or India or China or Japan or Mexico. Um, and part of the beauty of the modern age is that for people like us in a room such as this, we actually have perhaps, if we can save up the time and money, we can go and visit those places. And then thanks to technology, actually, somebody like me can, can live in the place that makes a deeper sense to me than any of my official homes. Uh, and that is all, almost my heart's or soul's home rather than just the home on my passport. So I've lived in Japan for 29 years on a tourist visa to remind myself that I'll never be Japanese. And I shouldn't kid myself that any Japanese person is eager to see me in their community because they're not. <laughs> But as a tourist who's permanently bewildered and fascinated and moved by this place I'll never begin to understand, What could be better? And my, my, in my father's generation, had he been fascinated by Japan, he might have been able to save up for one trip. In my grandfather's generation, had he been fascinated by Japan, he might have been able to read a book or see early photographs of Japan. So I'm really grateful for what technology um, makes available to us. And just one thing to go back to the deceleration. Sorry for the endless answer. You weren't asking for it, I don't think. <laughs> Or maybe you were. Yeah, I, <laughs> But, yes, I am. All right. Well, thank you for the <laughs> positive reinforcement. Dangerous encouragement, in fact. <laughs> um, last year, for my sins, I had to spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. And the thing that really... <laughs> Um, the, the thing that really made an impression on me, which I hadn't expected, is that it's the people who have created these wonderful new technologies who are most sensitive to the need to create limits around them. So I quickly found that many, many people in Silicon Valley, you probably all know this, maintain internet Sabbaths. And they go completely offline from Friday night to Monday morning every week so that they'll have something useful and fresh to offer when they go online again. And they know that technology can give us everything except a sense of how to make the wisest use of technology. And for that, we have to take a walk, hike. Meditate, go, go into ourselves. Um, I did an event last year with Evan Williams, who founded, co-founded Twitter. And not only does he meditate every day, but he actually leads his entire staff in meditation and was shocked that I'd never meditated. Uh, when I go to the Google campus, uh, you may know that apart from all the famous meditation rooms and um, playgrounds, they actually have a thousand yoglas who are people who have been trained on the, yoga, um, on the Google campus to be yoga teachers, quite apart from the many yoga sessions they have. And one of my best friends in Google gave me this terrific idea that I want to steal, which is that when he's making his weekly calendar, he always makes appointments with himself. He knows that he has a very busy agenda. So from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Tuesday, he'll make an appointment with himself just to make sure he can catch his breath, collect his resources, remember what he cares about, and bring something to the person he's meeting at 4.15. So it's a simple idea, but it strikes, struck me that they are even ahead of the rest of the world in knowing when to unplug and step away from their devices. Well, in making the shift to unplugging, would you read from The Art of Stillness for us about your, yes. when you went to the monastery in Japan? Yes. And actually, um, yes, this is a monastery in California. Oh, okay. But that's all right. Uh, what happened was uh, I went to the monastery in Japan for a year. <laughs> I bailed out after a week. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But I moved to a very small room without a private toilet or telephone. Okay, why did you bail? Uh, it was really hard work. I had imagined sitting in my office in New York City, a monastery in Japan is sitting and contemplating the moon and penning haiku. I arrive there and it's sweeping leaves, scrubbing floors, 
brushing everything. Really, really rigorous hard work. And I was saying earlier today, it was much too similar to what I'd experienced in English boarding school. And I thought, <laughs> enough already. <laughs> yeah, I've, done, I've put in 10 years in that prison. I don't need any more. Uh, but interestingly, when I moved to this very bare apartment, actually barer than the place in the monastery, I told myself, well, I've come here to learn about things like attention and selflessness. Uh, and, and kindness, and I can learn about those as much in the convenience store and the department store um, as in a monastery. In fact, that's probably the first principle of Zen. There's no distinction between the, the, the monastery and the red light bar. Uh, and it was true, because when I went to a McDonald's, I would notice how almost invisibly a young Japanese mother would be teaching her three-year-old son how always to serve her two-year-old daughter before himself. In other words, reflexively, to think of others' needs before his own. And um, when I went to the department store, everywhere there were pictures of River Phoenix, who is a big, late teenage star then, whom they venerate there because he's like a cherry blossom. He flared and then he was gone so quickly. But you know, everything in Japan, to me, is suffused with those ideas of impermanence and, and, and selflessness and, and, and thinking about others. So you didn't need, that. there's no distinction really between the monastery and what's outside um, the monastery. So yes, that's a long preamble. So that gave me a taste of what it would be like to live simply. Um, and then like any fool in, in a fairy tale, having traveled to Kyoto and Tibet and many other really exalting, uplifting places to find to visit monasteries, I found my ideal monastery uh, three hours up the road from my mother's house in California. So. <laughs> Uh, this is a small part about that. Uh, so this comes maybe three years after I left New York and three years after I first was in Japan. One day I got into my car and followed a road north along the California coast and then drove up an even narrower path to a Benedictine retreat house a friend had told me about. When I got out of my worn and dust-streaked white Plymouth horizon, it was to step into a thrumming crystal silence. And when I walked into the little room where I was to spend three nights, I couldn't begin to remember any of the arguments I'd been thrashing out in my head on the way up, the phone calls that had seemed so urgent when I left home. Instead, I was nowhere but in this room, with long windows looking out upon the sea. A fox alighted on the splintered fence outside, and I couldn't stop watching, transfixed. A deer began grazing just outside my window, and it felt like a small miracle stepping into my life. Bells tolled far above, and I thought I was listening to the hallelujah chorus. I'd have laughed at such sentiments even a day before. And as soon as I went to vigils in the chapel, the spell was broken. The silence was more tonic than any words could be. But what I discovered almost instantly was that as soon as I was in one place, undistracted, the world lit up, and I was as happy as when I forgot about myself. Heaven is the place where you think of nowhere else. It was a little like being called back to somewhere I knew, though I'd never seen the place before. As the monks would have told me, though I never asked them, finding what feels like real life, that changeless and inarguable something behind all our shifting thoughts, is less a discovery than a recollection. I was so moved that before I left, I made a reservation to come back, and then again for two more weeks. Very soon, stepping into stillness became my sustaining luxury. 
I couldn't stay in the hermitage forever. I'm not good at settling down and I'm not part of any spiritual order. But I did feel that spending time in silence gave everything else in my days fresh value and excitement. It felt as if I was slipping out of my life and ascending a small hill from which I could make out a wider landscape. It was also pure joy, often, in part because I was so fully in the room in which I sat, reading the words of every book as though I'd written them. The people I met in the retreat house, bankers and teachers and real estate salespeople, were all there for much the same reason as I was, and so seemed to be my kin, as fellow travelers elsewhere did not. When I drove back into my day-to-day -day life, I felt the liberation of not needing to take my thoughts, my ambitions, myself so seriously. This small taste of silence was so radical and so unlike most of what I normally felt that I decided to change my life a little more. The year after I discovered what a transformation it could be to sit still, I moved to Japan for good to a doll's house apartment in which my wife and I have no car, no bicycle, no bedroom or TV I can understand. I still have to support my family and keep up with the world as a travel writer and journalist, but the freedom from distraction means that every day when I wake up looks like a clear meadow with nothing ahead of me stretching towards the mountains. This isn't everyone's notion of delight. Maybe you have to taste quite a few of the alternatives to see the point in stillness. But when friends ask me for suggestions about where to go on vacation, I'll sometimes ask if they want to try going nowhere, especially if they don't want to have to deal with visas and injections and long lines at the airport. One of the beauties of nowhere is that you never know where you'll end up when you head in its direction. And though the horizon is unlimited, you may have very little sense of what you'll see along the way. The deeper blessing, as Leonard Cohen had so movingly shown me, sitting still, is that it can get you as wide awake, exhilarated, and pumping-hearted as when you were in love. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. There is a temptation to think that finding stillness and finding a place of stillness means shutting out the world. Yes. What, what does stillness have in it? Yes, thank you. I mean, I think stillness is about learning to see the world more clearly and love it more deeply. It's really about the coming back into the world. As I say, I can only go to on retreat for three days, but those three days are fueling me for... The, the next three months. And I think in some ways it's like building up your inner savings account. Uh, last year, I, I, you, I haven't told you this, but last year I was asleep in my apartment in Japan one morning, suddenly the phone began to ring. Uh, and no good news ever comes in the dead of night. So I woke up and I stumbled through the dark apartment. I picked it up and I heard a strange voice saying, Pico Aya, please. I said, yeah, that's me. He said, can I speak to Pico Aya? I said, yes. And he said, you don't know me, but I'm a nurse in Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara and your mother has just had a stroke. And she's having a seven-hour 
our uh, operation two days from now. It would be a good idea for you to come back. So, of course, I got on the next plane. I went back. And um, I spent the next 35 days in the ICU with my mother. She's fine now, but she was wavering between life and death again and again. And I'm really her only living relative. And so, as I was sitting there by her bed, of course, I was thinking... All the trips I've taken, all the books I've read, all the books I've written, none of that's going to sustain me or help her. The only thing that's going to be of any use to her or me is whatever I've gathered uh, in silence and whatever I've gathered uh, inwardly, I suppose. That's the only resource I have to bring to the situation. And I mention it only because all of us have to deal with suffering, old age and death all the time. And it's remarkable, just in the reception an hour ago, I was talking to somebody and she was describing how she had been through um, a six-month meditation retreat and, um, and a course in death and dying. And right after that, at a very young age, she was told, you've got cancer. And, um, and I think it seems like she's better now, but however that plays out, that six months is what's really going to help her for you know, the rest of her life and help everybody around her. Uh, and I suppose I was talking this morning about uh, the, the sort of double standard where I think the external world is so much around us and inside us and with us now that it almost drowns out the in internal world. And it's easier evermore to think about external data and external resources and to forget that what really um, keeps us going in the end is something internal. You wrote about something that Leonard Cohen told you, which is, we, have a, we only have enough time for making a living. We don't have enough time for making a life. Mm. And again, he's a perfect example, and everybody here knows Canada's great resource and treasure, wonderful performer and singer and poet, Leonard Cohen. And uh, I was lucky enough to spend time with him, as that uh, excerpt suggests, when he was spending five and a half years living uh, as a Zen monk. And of course, it was really moving to see this man who had been a celebrity for 30 years, who could be anywhere, who could be doing anything, choose to spend all his days, in fact, scrubbing those dishes and, and wiping those floors. He didn't wimp out like you did. He didn't. He's got, mm, he's, he, he's always been hungry for nothing to touch. He's really got a rigorous commitment to discipline and order. Five and a half years, I was one week. Um, and most of what he was doing was looking after his elderly teacher and everybody else in the community. And it, it, the first thing that made a big impression on me was that when, he, he, when I visited him, he was putting himself through 168 uninterrupted hours of meditation, seven days and seven nights of just sitting in the zendo, and occasionally breaking from his meditation to practice walking meditation, walking amidst the pine trees on what looked like snow-covered ground, very icy ground. Uh, and at the end of the, the retreat, he came down into my cabin, and he said, you know, I'm 61 years old, and this is the great excitement I have found in life. This is the gorgeous and voluptuous entertainment that the world has to offer. And this from a man who had tasted, clearly, all that sex and drugs and rock and roll have to offer. And so it made an impression on me that this man who knew everything about the world would find this the great challenge and adventure, adventure and instruction. And then to go back to what we were just talking about, uh, when he came down from the mountain, as most of you know, he found that while he'd been meditating, somebody had defrauded him of his life's savings and he had nothing to leave to his son and his daughter and his grandchild and um, I visited him then and I said well now we know exactly what those five years were about. I mean one way or another life has plans wiser than the plans that we make and you were being prepared really for living from nothing with nothing and starting from scratch. Uh, and then I'll embarrass Laurie because backstage she just 
shared with me the most beautiful phrase, which is, some of you may have seen Leonard Cohen when at the age of 73, he started for six years giving concerts all around the world, three-hour concerts in which he would run on stage. Uh, and Laurie said uh, that she knew somebody involved in that tour. And really what Leonard Cohen was doing was treating the concert stage as a sacred space. And I think any of you who saw him there knew that what he was doing was to bring the stillness of his monastic cell in the monastery right into the heart of Los Angeles and New York and, and um, Paris and every other crowded, accelerating city. And when you saw him on stage, you would see that he would stand just like that. And he would bow again and again before his backup singers as if they were the main attraction. And that I think what really shocked people seeing him in his late 70s on that tour was that he brought a sense of intimacy and depth and wisdom that we're not used to seeing um, in the rock and roll arena. Um, and so exactly as you said, really stillness, was a way, stillness of the mountain was a way station to what he was bringing back to share with all of us. And it is very intoxicating and I find almost seductive to see someone who has that capacity around them and that you, you sense that kind, that strength. It is, you want to be close to someone like that. Did you find that? Yes, and you were just saying backstage, you've talked to so many people as an interviewer, and there's something really remarkable about him. And I think the most important thing I would say about him from the little I've witnessed is that whenever I visit his house, I've never met somebody, with the exception of the Dalai Lama, so kind, so modest, so attentive. Um, it's a remarkable thing that he has somehow dismantled everything that the world associates with Leonard Cohen or being a, a celebrated uh, rock star and, and poet and has turned himself into this um, invisible agent of service. You really feel, and you were saying the same thing, that when he's with you, all his attention is on making you feel comfortable and putting you at ease. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we were talking about Leonard Cohen. Tell me about what the Dalai Lama taught you about stillness? I, I've been very lucky that um, I've known the Dalai Lama for 42 years now. Uh, my father was a professional philosopher and was interested in many religions. And so as soon as the Dalai Lama came into exile in 1959, my father sailed all the way from England, where we were living, to um, the Himalayas to meet the Dalai Lama. And so I really was lucky to inherit that connection. But nowadays, for eight straight Novembers, um, I and my wife uh, travel with him every day as he um, travels across Japan each November, and we're as close to him as we are to you. So for his entire eight hours of his working day. So we not only uh, have lunch with him every day and attend uh, all of his public engagements, but he's kind enough to allow us to sit in on all his private audiences with old friends and other religious teachers, scientists, uh, sometimes heavy metal rock and rollers. Uh, and one of the things that's so remarkable, uh, you all know about the Dalai Lama's attributes, and before I began a book on him, I was a little apprehensive, and I thought, I hold this man in high respect. Maybe looking at him really closely for five years, I will be disenchanted a little, or something will fall off the image I have of him. And the more I watched him, the more uh, stunned I was and impressed 
I was by him. But one of the things is that when we come down from his hotel room in the elevator to the hotel lobby, of course, there's a sea of people waiting to descend on him, asking for his blessing, asking him these urgent life and death questions, wanting a, a photo with him. And he will attend to every last 11-year-old child as if he were listening to the Buddha. I mean, he absolutely listens to the person. And then we're with him, as I say, for every minute of his eight-hour day. And it's an exhausting day, as you can imagine. And quite often, his hosts will say generously to him, well, if you'd like just to take 10 or 15 minutes to gather yourself, to be quiet for a while. He'll say, no, 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 we must all be together. So he never takes a single break throughout the day. And at the end of his day, He's 81 years old, I'm 22 years younger. I am exhausted just from watching him. And he has given everything of himself every moment. And he does that day after day, flying huge distances across the planet. And I think part of that is his temperament. Part clearly is his training and his monasticism. But another part is that every day at three in the morning, while I'm fast asleep and only have my buffet breakfast in mind, he is meditating for four hours. Uh, and so, by the time he comes out into the world at 8.30, he's done 240 minutes of gathering himself. And clearly, so you couldn't have a more visible testimony of what really disciplined um, meditation does than Leonard Cohen on the one hand, a man of the world who became a monk, and the Dalai Lama on the other, a monk who's really become a great friend to everybody in the world. And just as you were saying earlier, as some of you know, while the Dalai Lama is doing his first four hours of meditation, he also is listening to the BBC World Service. And he once told me he was actually addicted to it. He said if he's traveling and he can't listen to the news, he really feels as if something fundamental is missing from his day. So it speaks to your point that this isn't about being away from the world. It's about being in the midst of it. And it's about how to bring clarity and focus and kindness to the midst of Times Square or Bloor Street in, in Toronto uh, or the Champs-Élysées. Uh, and that um, his meditation is essentially about versing himself in what's happening in the world and what he can bring to help the world. I mean, I think of him really as a, as a doctor of the mind. And his first question is, where is the pain? And his response is try, to try to give a human, partial, qualified response to the pain, as any doctor does. You've just talked about two people that are very well known for their meditation practice. And you've spent a time with them, in particular the Dalai Lama, and yet you yourself do not meditate. Mm. Why is that? <laughs> well, I was calling my wife the other day in Japan, maybe on Tuesday, and I said, I'm, gosh, this is quite daunting. I'm surrounded in this very contemplative space with lots and lots of meditators, and I've never meditated in my life. And she started falling around laughing. She said, all you ever do is meditate because you're a writer. You know, the writer's job is to wake up, go to his desk, sit there, sit there, sit there, watch all the projections and distortions go past him, try to find what is true behind the many voices in which we can speak and the many the words that we throw at the world. And, uh, you know, as far as she's concerned, she wished I got out more. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm spending all my time just sitting. And that's the privilege of a writer's job, um, that we're paid. Actually, these days we're not paid, but we're encouraged <laughs> to, to sit still a lot for a living. So... So that headspace, that headspace where you are when you are writing, you would, you would equate to a, a, it feels like a different state for you than what, what you're doing right now or when you're sitting in a plane? It does. It's a, it's a training in attention and it's a training in seeing through yourself 
in every sense of that word. It's just seeing past yourself. And, and in fact, it's a training in getting yourself to try to disappear because a writer's job is not to look at the tree, it's to become the tree, more or less. Or to, to, I, I actually didn't say it in the conversations we've been having this week, but I heard about a wonderful discipline in Japan, actually, of a man who, um, actually a Japanese psychologist, who said he would only see his patients after they began keeping a journal every day and they were never allowed to use the first person in their journal. So they had to keep a journal day after day, week after week after week, never use the word I. And uh, that's a Japanese way of doing things, of course, but I think it's also what the writer's way is, which is to try and uh, disappear within whatever character or world you are trying to voice. So I think, in a way, I, I, it's not meditation, and I'd be kidding myself if I said it, it was equivalent to the hard work of meditation, especially having seen how much hard work it is in those monasteries. But uh, last year I was doing an event with a Zen abbess in California, and she was talking about meditation, and to me it really sounded like she was a writing teacher, and I was talking about writing. She said, whoa, that's what we do too. Uh, so they're not a million miles apart, and that's not peculiar to writing. I think whatever your calling, your job is, probably involves a great deal of concentration and trying to get yourself out of the picture. And in some ways, many a job offers us that opportunity if we choose to take it as such. Mm -hmm. The things that are inside stillness, you wrote about silence. Is silence a big part of what we need to decelerate? Well, silence, I think, is, is probably my teacher in life. Yeah, I, I'm still, I'm not a member, as I read, of any spiritual order. I don't have a, a human teacher. But when I went to that monastery and I saw how silence made a mockery of so much that I considered valuable and cut through so much, and I felt that just the process of stepping into silence could probably be cleansing for many people. And of course, that's not to uh, underestimate the terror. And you delivered and shared with us a lovely piece the other day about how meditation is not about being above the clouds, sitting cross-legged in this blissful state. It's about the torment of being in a beehive and all your shadows and your demons are chattering in your head. That's stillness. Well, silence too, I think. But I would rather look at those demons and shadows in that setting than in, on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. In other words, if you, you, you don't get past your shadow by running away from them. You only get work through your problems by sitting with them. Uh, and I would be much happier sitting with them in a monastery, in silence, in a meditative practice than trying to do it between a cell phone call and an email. Um, so. Uh, silence, I think, is a, is a sort of journey into the wilderness, and lots of things you want to push down come out. But that's the beauty of it, because again, I think it prepares you better for sharing um, the best part of yourself with everybody else. Um, and I think the beauty of silence for me is non-denominational. I think the most impressive people I've met in my life, like the two we've been talking about, are very seriously committed to a religion. But for those people who don't always have um, the courage commit themselves to a religion, the beauty of silence is um, that it, it can perhaps restore and guide you in some of the, as a step towards what full religious practice does. Um, it's a non-denominational teacher and um, it makes texts and um, doctrines seem much less important than something else. I, I was sharing with you and some of the other people here that one of the beauties of when I visit Leonard Cohen in his house in this broken, desperate part of Los Angeles where there are bars on the windows of the houses and even the pizza delivery places won't go, um, is that sometimes when his friends visit or 
uh, even an acquaintance like myself visits, he'll take two chairs out into his small garden overlooking a tidy flower bed and overlooking the street and just sit there, absolutely silent, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I think that's because of his wisdom that that's a deeper kind of communion than any small talk or most of the words that we would be exchanging. That's, it's in silence that we come together. Um, you were saying backstage that you and many people find it strange that uh, my Japanese wife of 29 years speaks limited English and I speak more limited Japanese. But for everything essential, we've never had trouble communicating. And in fact, it's a freedom and a relief to be away from words because words can so often be used as weapons, as smoke screens, as diversions. They can be a cruel part of the, the games that partners play. And uh, it feels like a much more transparent communication because when I'm talking to her, I really want to get the meaning from me to her and she too. And there's a clarity in that that I find quite tonic. It, the stillness, can the, then can stillness be a place that is beyond language? It is. I, I mean, I haven't really distinguished, as you can tell, between stillness and silence. Um, but I think the best part of us is beyond language. And I was thinking just yesterday in my cabin that um, words, by definition, can't express the essential things of life, because the essential things of life, by definition, are beyond words. Falling in love, faith, terror, wonder. I think it's really hard to put words to any of that. And as a writer, what you're really trying to do is, is actually put silences, blank spaces to that. In other words, if I were to try to evoke terror right now, I wouldn't describe you know, how a forest fire was raging towards me in the hills of California, but uh, I would try to be much more haiku-like. One sentence here, one sentence there, and then the, the reader fills in the terror. She has to bring the terror to it. I, I, I can't impose it on her. Mm. That um, there is no time in our day for moments that are beyond language. There are very few moments like that. It makes it seem like that the, the point of stillness is, is the quiet and the ability to get beyond language where you're not having to speak to somebody. Beautifully said, exactly. And, and I think it, when I was asked to write this book about stillness, that's essentially what I felt we needed. Um, just a few minutes in the day to collect ourselves. Some people do it by running, some do it by cooking, some do it by yoga or meditation or who knows what. But I think without that, we lose all our balance and our sanity and we find that we are at the mercy of all the stuff that's coming in on us and we have much more information than we know how to process. And our processing device comes from being still and being silent. So if we're not doing that, as you say, um, we're like Mickey Mouse in Fantasia, <laughs> just going down under the flood. You, uh, in the book, at the beginning of the book, you dedicate it to Sunny Mehta, who is the editor of Alfred Knopf, the publisher, who said, and you said that he showed you the relationship between art and stillness. What did he tell you? Nothing. <laughs> and I, I don't want to sound too zen about it, but um, he, he's been a publisher for 50 years, and he's nurtured most of the writers we cherish in the world. So his whole life has been consecrated to art. But anybody who knows Sonny Mehta knows uh, his great gift is for silence. And just last week, I was in Toronto talking to a lot of friends, all of whom are edited by Sonny. And one of them said, you know, his weapon is silence. But he says almost nothing. Uh, and 
that allows you to make your own mistakes, allows you to make a fool of yourself, or it allows you to be more sparing with the words and more thoughtful and careful about what you're bringing to him. And it's actually, it's a very, very good device. I remember the first editor I ever had, uh, I would send maybe 100 pages of a manuscript to him, and he would send me a letter this long. And that was enough to slap me awake and get me out of all my long habits. And if he'd written three pages, it might not have, because each sentence would have eroded the previous sentence. But he'd just tell me in two sentences everything I was doing badly. End of letter. Um, this is not Sonny. This is another editor. But um, Sonny, when you talk to him, says nothing and uh, forces you back on to yourself. So in some ways, he's like a walking meditation retreat, I suppose. <laughs> not always easy for his colleagues and not always easy for authors hungry for feedback. But uh, a special well, gift and to be master of the world of words and to be um, essentially cherishing silence, that's a special, interesting position. Wow. Well, then I'll have to ask you about the role of art and can art bring us closer to that feeling of stillness? Oh, I think yes, and I think that's what the Bank Banff Centre is consecrated to because it's an, an inviting us all to this place of singular stillness and beauty, and then inviting us to take this out into the world in the paintings that we, we make, the compositions that we hear, such as Tomorrow Night, um, even the books that we, we write. And um, I invited, I was talking to fellow artists this week, and I invited everyone to bring to our discussion some of the works of art that had inspired them. And it was glorious to hear one minute about Mark Rothko and the next about John Cage, the great musician who said that music lies in what's between the notes and who wrote a whole book on silence as a musician. It was wonderful to hear about the, the film director Terence Malick uh, who uh, has his writers say lots and lots of words and then takes them all out in the editing studio so all you have is silence but you can feel the presence of um, the, the words that once upon a time were spoken, and, and so many others. And I think silence has al always been a human need, of course, but I think right now it's a necessity and it's what people are craving uh, more than ever before because of the clatter and the clamor of the world. People pay hundreds of dollars to go to black hole resorts as they called, where the main amenity is that you hand over your cell phone or your tablet on arrival and live unplugged. Uh, God forbid, actually looking at the mountains and breathing the air and enjoying everything around you for those those days. So I think, I feel everybody crying out for it. And I've noticed that um, works that address silence uh, are like emergency hospitals moving around the world now. There was, a, uh, there was a great film, it didn't come up in our discussion, called Integrate Silence that came out a few years ago. And I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was by a German filmmaker who approached the monks of the Grand Chartreuse in Fr France and asked if he could make uh, a documentary on them. And being monks, they move at a different pace. So it took them 16 years to get back to him. <laughs> and when they did, they said, yeah, you can come and make a documentary. <laughs> But they, they, they cut a harder deal than any Hollywood executive producer. They said, you can make a film about us, but you have to come, you have to live our life, you have to be a monk, and you, you can't have a cameraman or a soundman, you have to be all of that yourself. And good for him, he, he did it. And so you're really seeing silence from within. It's as if he's voicing silence for all of us. And it's a, a 160-minute movie, very, very long movie, about weeks and seasons in the days of these completely silent monks. So 
you will have a scene of two minutes of a monk meticulously uh, cutting some cloth so as to repair his, his, um, his robe. And you'll have another scene of three minutes of them very, very carefully baking something or tending the garden. And uh, I was actually sent this DVD before uh, it was released uh, and asked to write something about it. And I was very, very moved by this. But I thought, if there's a definition of a hard sell, it's a 150-minute <laughs> movie about silence and, and monks doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> which it is. That's not an exaggeration. Again, some of you may have seen it. When it opened in New York, it became a sensation. The New York Times said it was extraordinary. Variety acclaimed it as one of the best films of the year. It played and it played and it played and it played to sell out crowds. They extended the run month after month. There was actually an item in the New Yorker talk of the town section about this phenomenon. And to me, it was just a small reminder that um, if there'd been a film about noise there, I don't think it would have had the same effect. We have plenty of that already, but something in us is longing for that. That's the great need that is waiting to be fulfilled. And I think an artist, and I think we're going to hear this tomorrow night, who really wants to speak to the deepest part of people, now more than ever, is going to be working in silence. Mm. It almost feels like pursuing uh, stillness at this moment in time, it almost feels subversive, because the whole world is seemingly against us. Um, I am pleased to be able to bring up The Wizard of Oz because I think any evening that has a little <laughs> Wizard of Oz in it is important. But as I read in the book, can you tell us what Dorothy has to tell us about stillness? Uh, to be honest, I can't because I can't remember the, uh, the epigraph <laughs> of the book. And I don't have See, the book If here. I ever go looking for home again, I'm never going to look past my own backyard because if I haven't lost, if I haven't... You, if, I, if it's not there, then I haven't lost it in the first place. Something like that, right? I'm so glad I couldn't remember. You delivered it much better than I could. That was it's wonderful. A, it's, a, it's going nowhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you no, know, I loved the way what you said about um, being revolutionary in its way. Uh, you began um, our conversation by invoking Thomas Merton, the great Cistercian monk, and he always, again and again, in the 1960s, said, we are the real counterculture guys, the monks, because we're moving in exactly the diff opposite direction from the rest of society. We are the radicals and revolutionaries who are choosing to live on the margins, precisely because the margins are where all the open space is. You know, the central text, there's not much you can do with it except cross it out. But in the margins, that's a huge field in which the imagination and the voice and the silence can, can run. So yeah, it is going against the stream a bit. And when I come, for example, to the Banff Center and I tell my really gracious hosts that I don't have a, a cell phone, I'm not necessarily doing them a kindness, and I do feel a little guilty. Uh, and I am made aware that I'm, I'm going in towards the 13th century as everyone else is racing towards the 22nd. But it's only because I'm responding to a necessity. I mean, I feel that uh, if, if I want to be a healthy person, I mean, I think it's basically about health and happiness, which is what we all need. And for me, that comes with having as few distractions as possible and as much space to, uh, to offer something to people around me. Can I, can I ask one thing? Because, you know, you're so generously asking me questions. You have made great investigations into silence and darkness and solitude. And every evening you share with the whole of Canada, including many people here, your, your journeys into darkness. And I, I wonder how they have evolved in the years you've been doing this. Well, working on late night radio, I'm very aware that people are always trying to make their transition from day to night at that time of night. And I find it, the more I 
think about it and read about it and experience it myself. I know it's a difficult transition for us to make. And the day just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And to make our switch and to find our stillness is a very difficult thing to do. And so on my radio show, I try to help people make that transition and to shut the day down and start the night because I think that the night has so much potential and it can be a very comforting thing if we allow it to be the night and to not let the day creep into our night. But it's a very hard transition to make. So that's why I was, um, I loved your book, The Art of Stillness, and why I wanted to come to Banff, because I think that we all want to investigate more about this kind of life, and we know that we need it, and that's why we're all here.